good morning to you as we start Sunday School. Today we're talking about man as a steward of God's creation. Uh, I think I may actually have the, I'm sorry, one second. There we go. Man as a steward of God's creation. If we are stewards, deputy rulers of what God has made, well, what are the implications of that? How should we rule God's creation? Before we get to that, though, some review of what we learned last week. Last week, we talked about the age of the earth. We've talked about, we've hit on that topic a, a few times in this course, but we talked about it more at length last week. About how old is the earth according to what we looked at last week. About how many years old? About 6,000 years old. And how did we get that number? Yeah, Danielle. That's right. The genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 are really a, a really big part. And then we combine that with some other historical information from the other parts of the Bible. About 2,000 years from Adam's creation at the beginning of the world, to Abraham's birth, as indicated by those two genealogies. Then, about 2,000 years from Abraham's birth to Christ's birth, as indicated by historical details in the Bible compared to historical details outside the Bible. And then, about 2,000 years from Christ's birth, which would be around 3 BC, to today. Add it all up, and you get about 6,000 years. Now, most young earth advocates would argue for about 6,000 years, though some will go as high as 10,000 years. But I would argue that there's no real, no real need for this range. This variation comes from interpreters using or being more reliant on scientific or archaeological evidence, evidence, data, or using less reliable Hebrew texts and or inferring gaps in the genealogies. But as I emphasized last week, the argument for gaps in the Genesis genealogies is extremely weak. Recall with me, what is the justification for inferring that there are gaps? Yes, yeah, Steve. Well, you're looking at what specifically in the New Testament. That's right. You look at other genealogies in the Bible. You look at other genealogies which have gaps, and you say, well, then this, gap, this genealogy probably has gaps too. The only other reason would be, again, scientific or archaeological information. You say, well, this must mean that there's got to be gaps in here. But let me say again to you, scientific claims certainly are not a good enough reason to infer gaps. Since we've already seen since the beginning of the course, we must start with and ultimately submit to the Bible, not some other authority. The, argue, the other argument, as Steve mentioned, is that certain genealogies in the Bible have gaps, and so the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies must as well. But this would only be true if those other genealogies can be shown to be the same kind of genealogy as those two in Genesis 5 and 11. But they aren't the same. What separates those two genealogies in Genesis from the others in the Bible? Yes, Eve. Right. 
I think you're on the right track. Certainly the first thing you said is right on the nose. That is, the language in the genealogy is different. The word used to describe the relationship between the relatives is for direct descendant. You remember I mentioned the Hebrew word yalad. It always means, inside the Bible, outside the Bible, always means direct descendant, father to child. Never been shown to mean something otherwise. So that's one big difference. I think what Steve was alluding to with the second comment is that the genealogy is focused on a single line of descendants that is purposefully written to link three important figures in time and history. That's Adam, Noah, and Moses. Probably the biggest difference, what was the, the other main difference between the genealogy, those two genealogies and the others in the Bible? Yeah, Dwayne. That's right. Very good. Thanks, Dwayne. The years given. Years given how long they lived, but also when they had their next descendant. This is a huge difference. No other genealogies in the Bibles do this. The only other type of descendant record in the Bible that is similar to this are the records of the Old Testament kings of Israel and Judah, where we do get the years of how long they reigned and then who the next descendant was. Certainly there aren't any gaps in that record. They were meant as factual records of not just the descendants, but of the time that they ruled and then how long they lived and died. And moreover, and something I didn't mention last week, some of the positions in the genealogy are verified by the Bible as instances of direct descendants. We know that Seth is the direct descendant of Adam. We know that Noah is the direct descendant of Lamech. We know that Arphaxad is the direct descendant of Shem, and Abraham is the direct descendant of Terah. So if all the relationships we can verify are direct descendants, why, again, would we assume that the others are not, or might not be? The burden of proof is on the gap advocates to provide a better reason for asserting the gaps. When pressed to do so, they cannot. I submit to you that in most cases, the real reason for inferring gaps is not because of something that the Bible indicates, but it's because of what somebody sees outside the Bible. He takes today's scientific claims, and he wants to make it fit with the Bible, and therefore he infers gaps. But trying to fit today's scientific claims with the Bible, especially when it comes to origins, is a foolish venture. We saw in the beginning, on, from our first lesson on creation, there's a big difference between the claims of the scientific community and the claims of those who start with the Bible. How old, again, do most scientists say the universe is? Right, so the universe is about 13 or 14.5 billion years old. And the Earth, I think, Craig, you were alluding to this, about 4.5 billion years. Mankind? Well, they say the first human-like creatures appeared about 2.5 million years ago. And the first Homo sapiens appeared about 300,000 years ago. So this timeline, and also the order of events articulated by scientists, is very different than what the Bible indicates, or what the Bible would lead you to believe. Billions of years, the Big Bang, and evolution just don't fit with the Bible, unless you mutilate the text. Remember this, please. Though we get technical at times in this class in our effort to provide full answers to those who question the Bible's meaning, 
don't miss the main point. And that's this. If you start with the Bible and simply try to simulate in your mind what the original Israelites would have understood, you come away with a young earth made by God in six 24-hour days. That's the way the Hebrews would have understood it. To say that they wouldn't is just wishful thinking. This is the same view, this view of creation in the age of the earth, is the same view affirmed by Jesus and the apostles, and it's the same view we see in virtually all surviving Jewish and Christian literature up until the 1700s. This view only changed in Christianity when many churchmen sought to accommodate the claims of scientists who openly rejected the Bible's historical truthfulness with the Bible. So I reemphasize that to you to make you see and encourage you, we do not stand at all on shaky ground or uncertain ground when we affirm a 6,000-year-old earth, about 6,000 years, and a literal six-day creation. That's, that's where the Bible leads us. That's what the Bible indicates, and that's what many Christians have affirmed for centuries. That's it for the review. Questions about what we've covered so far this quarter? Yeah, Danielle. Okay, that's a, that's a good question you're bringing up. It is, yeah, a little bit different than the main topic, but I'll, I'll address that real quick. You asked about the genealogy in Matthew for Jesus. Why does it go through Joseph's line if Jesus wasn't actually a descendant of Joseph? And the way I've heard it articulated, and I think this makes a ton of sense, is that of the two genealogies we have of Christ are looking to affirm different things. The genealogy through Matthew is to affirm that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful descendant of David, so he has the right to rule as king. Now, he's not the biological descendant, but because he's Joseph's son, and Joseph is in the line of David, then he is in the line of the, the Messiah. He is allowed to rule on the throne of Israel because he has the, he's the rightful heir. Now, the other genealogy in Luke traces the biological descent through Mary to say that he actually does come from um, a true line of humanity that also... I think it goes back to Judah. So that genealogy in Matthew is all about affirming Jesus' right to be king. That's a good question. Dwayne, are you going to add something else? I thought that, I thought that was true, yeah. Thanks for clarifying for that, Dwayne. Both genealogies from Luke and Matthew go back to David through different sons. But it's interesting. It's really important that the genealogy on Matthew is different. I remember somebody emphasized this point that one of the descendants in the in the line provided through Matthew, was cursed. And God says, you will not have one of your sons to reign on the throne of um, Israel anymore. One of your descendants will not, not be allowed to reign. If that were his biological descendant, then Jesus couldn't reign. But Jesus wasn't that, the biological descendant of that person. He was um, biological descent through a different line, as Luke indicates. Anyways, that's kind of cool detail. Other questions? That's right, Carol. James is Jesus' half-brother. 
And we hear a lot about him later in the Bible. He would be very important in the early church. Any other questions? Okay, let's talk about today's material. God created the earth, but then he gave some direction to man about man's role in it. That's what we're going to look at today. First, we're going to take a look, look at the original charge given to man in Genesis 1. Second, we'll discuss biblical principles to remember when it comes to that charge and when it comes to the environment today. And then third, we'll talk about global warming. Let's pray before we get started. Lord God, I thank you for being the, the great creator, the ruler of all the earth. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for revealing your word to us. Lord, I pray that we would trust it. Pray, Lord, that we would start with it and we'd stick with it. Lord, give me an ability to articulate the principles of your word in this class today. I pray that you would help the listeners to be able to understand and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by taking a look. When it comes to man's role on the earth, let's take a look at the original charge given by God to man and woman in Genesis 1. So open your Bibles there and look at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. I'll read the passage, and then we'll make a few observations on it. Starting in verse 26. Then God said, this is Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Okay. Let's make some observations. What is the first thing said about man in verse 26? That's right, Shay. It says that God, when he was designing man, and when he made man, he made man in the image of God. Some more observations. When God creates mankind, he defines man's relationship to the animals. What is the relationship? That's right. He's going to rule. He's going to have dominion over them. Which animals exactly? Livestock. It's all of them, yeah. If we go through each one of the ones that was, each one of the categories that was mentioned on the previous days, the birds of the air, which means all flying creatures, the fish of the sea, all sea creatures, the cattle, then it says everything that creeped on the earth. So all animals were put under man's dominion. Now what else was man given dominion over? Just the animals? 
the plants, but we can be even more inclusive. Well, that would be part of the, the animal group. Every creeping thing would be part of the animals. Notice it says in, mm -hmm. the yeah, I'm just looking for it. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for that. The earth was also put under his authority. I'm looking for the, verse 26, where it says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And then verse 28 also says, fill the earth and subdue it and rule uh, rule over all the things that are on it. So he rules over all the animals, and he rules over all the earth. Now, God gives a couple different commands to man and women in this passage. What are they? We already mentioned, he says, rule. He also says, subdue. What else does he say? Be fruitful and multiply. So be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and then rule over it and all the animals. God identifies a food, a food source for man in this passage. What is it? What's man going to eat? He's going to eat plants. God says, I've given you plants for food. And for, for whom also are plants going to be food? The animals. All animals and men were to eat plants. That's the food that God provided. Now, how does God describe the created order that he's inaugurated once he's finished making it? Very good. Not just good, but very good. Yeah, Andrew. When they refer to Undercity and all the earth, they're really meaning the land. I mean, it's a small distinction, but I don't think they're referring to the planet as planet Earth because there wasn't no word for that at the time, right? That's a good question, Andrew. When he says earth, does he mean just the land, or does he mean everything that's on this planet? I am not ready to say that he only means the land. I could, that, that may be true, but certainly this, what, whatever man is giving dominion over is very expansive. So to say you have no jurisdiction over anything that's not on the land, I don't know if we can say that. I'm under the impression that he means, when he says all the earth, everything that's on the earth, even the water that's on the earth. But I see what you're asking about. Yeah, it doesn't mean just the land. Okay, so we've made some observations. Let's, make, let's ask some more interpretive questions now. What part of being made in God's image is most emphasized in this passage? It's interesting, the passage starts out by saying, let's make man in our image, and then we're going to make man to do something. Yeah, Dwayne. That's right. This whole passage is about man being a ruler. That is part of the image of God, right? God is ruler. And he's making man in his image, so man is going to be a ruler as well. Man's going to have ruler, or he's going to have rule over the creation. But what does it mean exactly to rule? Let's ask some questions exploring that. What does the word rule mean? What does it mean to rule? Someone define that for me? Yeah, to be in charge of? 
Another definition? Yeah, Danielle? Yeah, to control, to decide something's fate. What are you going to say, Dan? Yeah, to have responsibility over. We could use other phrases. To have authority, to lead, to direct. These are all part of man's role as ruler. Man is going to have the authority to decide what to do with what's on the earth. And the animals and also the resources. We notice also that when speaking of the earth, God tells man to subdue it. Hmm, interesting word. What does subdue mean? Yeah, tame. Other definitions? <laughs> yeah, it does have a kind of aggressive context, right? To put down aggressively to conquer, right? That could be a meaning of subdue. To make something subject to you, to take command of something. This is something that man is charged with doing. Now, if you're going to take command over something, and if you're going to rule it well, what are you going to need to acquire? You certainly have to have the authority given to you. Uh, sorry, let me go to Andrew first. Wisdom. You need some knowledge, not only of um, the things that you're trying to tame, you're trying to take over, but how to do it. What were you, what were you saying, Diane? Yeah, a plan. You have to have a plan. You need to steady. So man is going to need to steady creation. He's going to need to apply wisdom and gain knowledge in order to know how to direct it, how to gain mastery over it, and how to make the most use of it. What are you going to say, Brian? Right. Exactly. You need people. And those people are going to need to gather resources in order to um, make the tools or allow them to further direct and rule the creation. Thanks for mentioning that as well, Brian. Yeah, something else? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but that's actually all of what we're exploring today. What does it mean to rule? We're getting different facets of it as we move through the passage, but Brian's totally right. This, this ruling as subduing is uh, for the purpose of taking care of it. This is not simply to just gain all the resources and, and leave the earth a, a waste. No, that's not, that's not going to be it. Some more things we should explore. We mentioned that man needs to steady and he needs to gather resources, but in this sense, he's going to be a little different from God as ruler. God can omnipotently act on the earth, and he can know everything from a distance. But how is man going to be different as a ruler? How will man need to rule in contrast to God? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, we are a little bit limited by our physical power, but working and, and, as you said, limited in our knowledge, we have to get up close and personal with something if we're going to rule it, if we're going to master it. We have to rule personally. 
We have to observe up close. We even have to touch and work with our hands this earth and the things on it as part of our rule. Genesis 2 gives us some more information about what man's rule looks like on the earth. Look at Genesis 2 down in verse 15. When talking about man being placed in the Garden of Eden, what's man's role there? Yeah, it says to, depending on your translation, cultivate and keep it. Man is, when he's put in the garden, he's told, or it's said that he will cultivate it and keep it. Now, these are poignant terms, because what do they imply? Certainly that there's work involved. That's a good observation. But as man rules the earth and works the earth, what does he have in mind? Yeah, Danielle. A plan, definitely. Andrew, what else are you going to say? Right, this is a very forward-thinking kind of work. He's not just working it for now. He's developing it. And he's making it last, and he's making it better for the future. As man exercises authority over the earth, and this is just as Brian was saying, he is going to conquer it, but not for the purpose of disposing it. He's going to develop the creation, even as he makes use of it and enjoys it. This also implies some accountability. Man is accountable for maintaining and improving the creation for the future, especially for his own descendants, right? Because one of the commands given to man is, be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, Rob. Ah, that's a good observation, Rob. This is all before the fall. This has some implications for how we think about work today and certainly about how we think about the earth. Something else from chapter 2. What task is Adam specifically given in Genesis 2, 19 to 20? Man is told to do what? Or what, what is man doing? He's naming, right? He's naming the animals that God brought to him. Now, have you ever wondered how Adam did this? Actually, it's not too hard to imagine because we see Adam's thought process when he names woman, right? In uh, chapter 3, remember Adam's reasoning? Adam says, she shall be called woman. Why? That's right. She's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, because she came out of man. As we noted, that name is actually very descriptive of the creature. Man observed, he steadied the woman, and he came up with an appropriate name. Adam likely did the same thing with the animals, just as taxonomists do today with those crazy Latin names. So assuredly, this is also part of man's rule, this work of steady and classification, not just of animals, but of all things on the earth, even the things that man creates. God endowed man with the intelligence to steady categorized through the use of names. Now, naming something, by the way, is also a symbol of what? It's a symbol of authority. In Genesis, it's notable, God names man. And he names certain parts of the creation. But he leaves the rest of the naming up to man as God's vice authority. So we're getting a more complete picture of what man's role is as ruler. Man decides what to do with the earth what to do with the animals and its resources, the other resources on the earth. Man gains mastery over the various parts of creation through personal work and study. 
Man develops and maintains the earth and its resources with his own multiplication in mind. Man observes and classifies the various parts of creation, but all of this is done under a view of man being accountable to God for how he rules. Now, as someone noted earlier, I think uh, Michelle noted, all of these aspects, notice, require work. Don't miss out on the fact that Adam and Eve were created to work before the fall. For them, the work was never frustrating or arduous. It was enjoyable, doable, fulfilling. But back to our picture of ruling. Doesn't man rule in these same ways today? Our economies and technologies and research and education and food and machines and refining, they're all examples of man exercising the dominion that God gave him over the earth and its resources. These methods of ruling the earth are actually glorifying to God since they are fulfillment of his command. But there is an important difference today in man's exercising dominion different than here in Genesis 1. And what's that big difference? Well, we're still accountable, but we're going to be accountable in a slightly different way that has to do with the, the main difference. Yes, man rules as if he's not accountable to God. Thanks, Mike. The big difference is the world and man is now cursed because of the fall. Even though man is still steward of the earth, he now rules sinfully, selfishly, and recklessly. Moreover, Ruling and developing creation has, is now painful, tedious, frustrating. The world itself is subjected to corruption in every quarter. And we see implications of that today as well. Lands become overworked and unusable. Invasive species appear and wreak havoc on environments. There's competition, conflict, and even bloodshed over limited resources. Man tries to turn his fellow man into a resource through forced slavery. Pollution makes water unclean and undrinkable, and many other problems. As a result, many environmental and social movements have risen up to address and combat these issues. And we are daily urged to donate money and to take part. Governments have gotten involved through regulation, conservation. Businesses, too, have gone green. So what do we do now? In a fallen world, in a corrupted world, how should Christians rule? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about next. Because there are some very important principles and promises from the Word of God that we need to keep in mind when it comes to ruling the earth today. What certainly is clear is that the Genesis 1 mandate to rule the earth, well, it still continues. Despite man's sin, he is still called to be a faithful steward of the earth and its resources. The earth is still for man. And we're still accountable to God for how we use, develop, and maintain it. However, there are other truths to keep in mind, especially when we consider various claims and calls from environmentalists. Please turn over to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to see one of these truths in the form of a promise from God. Turn to Genesis 8.20, verses, or we're going to be looking at Genesis 8.20 to chapter 9, verse 3. We're going to read what God says to Noah after the great flood subsides from the earth. Remember, this is around 2,350 B.C. Verse 20, chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Okay, a few quick observations on this passage. What promises does God make to Noah and his family? What's one? That's right. He won't curse the ground again. Now, what does that phrase exactly mean? Diane? That's right. This refers to destroying the earth. He also says, I will not do again, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And later on in chapter 9, he says, I'm never going to send a flood of waters to destroy the earth again. In that sense, God cursed the ground. This is not reversing the the curse on the ground from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. This is all about, I'm not going to destroy the earth again with water. There's another promise, though. What's the other promise? Yeah, Judy. That's right. Thanks, Judy. God is promising that he will uphold the earth's natural cycles of seasons and days while the earth remains. Now, what conditions does God give for these promises? What are the conditions? Well, certainly that command is part of it. He needs to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But in reference to the promises themselves, sorry, it's a little bit, or Judy, what were you going to say? Yeah, their promises themselves are unconditional. It's actually really interesting that when mentioning these promises, God mentions how evil man is. He says, I'm no longer going to, I'm never going to destroy the earth again like I have done, for man is evil continually from his youth. That seems like a strange reason, right? But God is saying, despite man's evil and misrule, I'm going to make these promises. And you're right, Michelle. He still commands man, however, to be fruitful and multiply. And he also gives man a new authority. What does man now have the authority to do? According to this passage. That's right. To eat animals. He says, I give them all to you as food, just like I gave you all the plants. So... This is an important passage when it, when it comes to thinking about the environment. God promises, despite man's evil and reckless rule of the earth, to nonetheless preserve the earth and its cycles while the earth remains. And he also promises to never again destroy the earth with water. Now someone might say, but maybe God will let us destroy the earth, and therefore his promise to preserve the earth will cease to apply. We're still in great danger, but this cannot be. Why not? Why is it impossible for us to destroy the earth? Explain that more, Brian. 
Exactly. Thanks, Brian. God already has told us how the earth is going to be destroyed. He's going to do it, and he's going to do it with fire. You see that second passage listed there. You don't have to turn there. I'll read 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10, just to remind you of what God says he will do. Here's 2 Peter 3, 7 and 10. But by his word, that's God's, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So do you hear that? This world is reserved to be destroyed in a certain way. It won't be destroyed by an alien invasion, the melting of the ice caps, or a giant asteroid. God will destroy the earth with fire on the day of judgment. When's that? Well, according to Revelation 20, that's at the end of Christ's millennial kingdom and after the final satanic rebellion. So we have two promises to keep in mind when it comes to the environment. One, God says he's going to preserve the earth. Two, God says that he will be the one who destroys the earth. And he will do that one day. Now, does this mean, in light of these promises, that it doesn't matter what we do? Just go ahead and trash the earth? It's disposable? Well, of course not. Though the earth won't pass away until God says so, we can make the earth, or certain parts of it, a lot worse for ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'd like to live in a world where I don't have to put on a mask just to go outside in my city due to the smog. Or where I don't have to be careful not to light my tap water on fire due to all the chemicals that are in it. I wouldn't want to live in that kind of world. Also, such reckless abuse of the earth's resources is a violation of God's mandate for man as steward. It's not only unwise, it's a violation of what charges were given to man in Genesis 1. Okay, so let's ask the opposite question. Does that mean we all need to be as green as possible? Not necessarily. Acting wisely as rulers of the earth means we're often going to find ourselves in an Ecclesiastes 3 situation. Let me read to you the verses, the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3, because they actually apply to how we think about the environment. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8 says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Good rule of the earth may mean that sometimes it's best to cut down the trees. Other times it may mean it's best to leave the trees there or even plant more of them. Sometimes it's better to use fossil, fuel, fossil fuels, and sometimes it isn't. We're going to have to practice discernment. We're going to have to know which time is appropriate. But how will we know? How will we know what's best in each situation? Well, aside from what I've just shared about the idea of man's stewardship and these two promises from God, I want to give you four more principles from the scriptures about how we handle the world and the environment. Four more biblical principles. 
so that we know what time it is. The first is, first principle, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always of first importance. That's our first principle. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always of first importance. We are not on earth, ultimately, to preserve the environment, fix government, or end all social ills. We are here to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. The earth and everyone in it will ultimately perish. But each person's soul is eternal. We are to reach those souls. We help the environment where we can, but we, can't we just can't afford to embrace every environmental initiative. Our time, energy, and money is limited, and those resources chiefly must go to the gospel. That's our first principle. Gospel is always primary. Second principle, man is the most important part of creation. Man is the most important part of creation. There are some environmentalists who see mankind as actually the ultimate problem. They say things like, we need to keep these forests pristine for the sake of the animals, for the sake of the plants. Just think of how much this ecosystem has been disturbed by man moving into the area. And this reasoning fails to consider Genesis chapter 1, where man is told to fill the earth and subdue it. The whole earth has been put under man's authority for man to direct, for man to live in, for man to use. We were not made to serve the animals and plants, but instead to rule them, act as stewards over them. Now, this doesn't mean, obviously, that we treat animals cruelly or that we callously drive scores of species to extinction. But this does mean we need to correctly arrange our priorities. Furthermore, while it is part of some religions of the world, especially in Asia, to treat the earth or nature as a sentient being to be honored, it is not nature we are accountable to. It is God. Exodus 20, where we get the Ten Commandments, remind us that we, have, we are to have no other gods except Yahweh. Not Mother Earth, not the local river god, not the precious jaguars, not the giant redwoods. We aren't accountable to them. We're accountable to God. He is the creator, and we are his stewards. Romans 1.25 also notes that it's a sign of a corrupted mind to serve the creatures and created things rather than the creator. So that's our second principle. Man is actually the most important part of creation. Third, to love your neighbor, you will need to take care of the earth. Serving your fellow man means wisely taking care of the earth and its resources. The principle is all over the Bible, but pretty explicit in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. I'll read that to you. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of your mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is one of the main reasons why we're so committed to preserving the earth. It's for the sake of the people on it. Abuse of the earth and its resources will make life worse for everyone. For example, if you overfish, you may make a killing in the short run, but in the long run, long run, everyone, including you, will suffer. Christians must not act this way. We're actually going to be witnesses to other people in the world when we show care for our fellow man and our environmental choices. I like what Brother Bill said. Bill Evans did a presentation about global warming about a year and a half ago in Sunday school. And he said this, I want to reemphasize re it, environmental questions for Christians must be addressed with one anothering in mind. 
how will I love or hate my neighbor by pursuing this action? So that's the third principle. Loving your neighbor means you're going to need to take care of the earth. Fourthly, Christians must obey the government's environmental policies. Christians must obey the government's environmental mandates. Now I know, and you know, governments are imperfect, and their environmental policies are no exception. However, remember the exhortation from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, which say, submit for the Lord's sake to governing authorities. They're actually put in place by God. So by submitting to them, we obey and please God. Moreover, as these passages emphasize, submitting in this way prevents those governments from showing their wrath on us, which would only hamper the gospel. It allows us to keep our consciences clean, and it silences the talk of foolish men who want to malign, the, uh, want malign Christ and his followers. If our rulers decide we all have to install new special filters on our cars, or that we have to pay some kind of pollution tax, that's okay. We must not grumble against God's sovereignty, nor do we disobey God's representatives. For the Lord's sake, we must show honor to the government and its environmental laws. So those are, our, those are the four principles I wanted to bring up to you. Keep in mind when it comes to discerning, what is the right time? What is the right way to act with these environmental issues? There's one other thing I want to talk to you about today, and that is the big issue, at least in today's media, global warming or climate change. What should Christians do about climate change for the sake of the gospel? As I said earlier, Bill gave a, a great lesson on global warming about two years ago. I'm actually going to repost that lesson on the website so that you can listen to that later. But for today, let me just give you three quick facts to know regarding climate change in order that we might make wise decisions about it. First, climate change is technically real. Global warming is technically real. According to a very credible and widely recognized study, the average global surface temperature has increased 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit since 1880. That's recognized to everybody, no matter what position they take on the issue. But is this a big deal? That depends on your worldview. If you believe in an Earth that is 4.5 billion years old, that was created by random chance, and, is, and whose temperatures are assumed to have very gradually changed over millions of years, this temperature increase over the last century seems like a rapid and serious development. It could be the beginning of the end. However, if you believe in a young Earth, made and maintained by God, this temperature change is not nearly as concerning. It's still worth looking into, but it's not nearly as concerning. Climate change is real. Global warming is real. We need to know that. Secondly, however, we need to know climate change is not well understood. Climate change is not well understood. Despite the impression we get from the media today, scientists do not have a firm grasp on climate change or what causes it. We know greenhouse gases are involved. But are they an effect or are they a cause? We don't know. Solar activity and other factors also play a role in climate, but why or how much is also not currently known. Moreover, the data that scientists have to work with is extremely limited. We've only been keeping track of some of, these some of the relevant data for a century. And the Earth has been around a lot longer. So again, assumptions are going to play a very pivotal role in the so-called findings of scientists. 
This is why we see huge variance in predictions about the effects of global warming. That being said, there is good reason to believe that based on some historical observations in the last two millennia, the Earth goes through cycles of warming and cooling. Yeah, Rich. Right. Rich, just to repeat your comment, the, the main issue of the debate is how much does man play a role in global warming? But we know that a lot of other things play a role, so it's, it's really hard to tell. And this is still something that is an ongoing researched issue. So that's the second thing we need to remember about global warming. It's not well understood. The climate change and the processes involved are not well understood. But thirdly, we need to remember that the debate is very emotionally, politically, and financially charged. Bill really emphasizes this in his Sunday school lesson, but a great deal of money is at stake in the question of global warming. Environmental organizations and fossil fuel companies and others are often more interested in seeing their side supported than arriving at any real answers about climate change. Additionally, the reporting on global warming is full of cherry-picked data, emotional manipulation, browbeating, personal attacks, recency bias, and other obvious logical fallacies. Bottom line is, when it comes to global warming in the media, we should be very cautious about what we believe from both sides. Because we know that there are many agendas involved. So, these three facts briefly presented to you hopefully cause you to see global warming is an issue that we, could, we should be concerned about, but not gravely concerned about because we know the promises of God. And we know that a lot of the claims being made about climate change and global warming right now just are not supported by real strong evidence. There's a lot of unknowns still about climate change. But thank the Lord that his word is sure. As we navigate the various and difficult environmental questions of our day, we have the trustworthy promises and principles of God's word to stand on. It all comes down to stewardship. This world is for our use, but we are accountable to God for how we use it. Before I ask you if you have further questions, let's take a look at a few of the application questions in your workbooks. Please turn in your workbooks, if you have them, to page 56. One question, though, that's not in your workbook that I want to ask is, Christians are often seen as anti-environmentalist. Why is this the case? Yeah, Danielle. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think that's a, that plays a role. We don't seem to be as worried, and so people assume, oh, they must not care for the environment at all. Other thoughts? Yeah, Steve. Oh, right, okay, that's a really good point. The environmentalist movement is being pushed by many people who actually are anti-gospel or anti-Christian, anti-Christ. So when we don't engage with them, they say, well, you, you must be the enemy then. You're an enemy of the earth. Now, I'm sure there are many factors, but we should remember that some Christians do go too far when it comes to, we have a right to use the earth. We can't forget the idea of stewardship. But I think mostly the reason we're seen as so anti-Earth or anti-environmentalist is that 
people are confused about our position. They see that we're pro-human, but also pro-environment. The issues are so, so polarizing, however, that they think that if we don't totally agree with their environmental agenda, we must be their enemy. But we want to show them the biblical, the biblical view about the environment. How can we make, this is question one in your book, how can we make the biblical case for using the Earth's resources for our benefit? How can we show them that the Earth was actually meant for us to use? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, well, where can we go? Where specifically? Yeah, we go. Genesis 1 is a perfect place to go. The verses we discussed today show that man has been granted rule over the earth for his use responsibly. We want to emphasize that stewardship concept. Using and ruling the earth means responsible development, not exploitation for selfish gain at the expense of others and future generations. That's not what God called us to. Question two. What are the dangers of becoming too involved in environmental causes as a church? Yeah, Eric. That's exactly right, Eric. It's not our ultimate purpose, and when we engage in that, if we make that one of the main purposes, we often are drawn away from our ultimate purpose. The biggest danger of becoming too involved in environmental causes as Christians or as a church is that it will replace the gospel of forgiveness of sins in Christ with the gospel of saving the planet. And unfortunately, many evangelical Christians have done this. There is such a thing as the creation care movement, which essentially makes saving the earth the gospel, saving the earth ecologically. And as also Eric mentioned, this diverts important resources to a goal that is not as important. The gospel must be primary. Question three. As we encounter people who have genuine fears about the threats of global warming, how can we use the scriptures to share the truth of the matter with them? How can we use the scriptures to help people who have concerns about global warming? Yeah, Eric. Right. That's certainly one part that we should emphasize. We should show them that God is actually extremely powerful as creator and sustainer, but also he has made compassionate promises to sustain creation until the consummation of Christ. So we want to show that, but we, actually have an, we also have an opportunity to show them something else from the scriptures. We can show them the gospel... But uh, what I have in mind is there's a specific way they can do that. They're worried that the earth will be destroyed by global warming. Yeah, Michelle. That's actually what I was getting at, that we want to show them that yeah, God is loving, he's preserving the earth, but understand there is going to be a time when the earth is going to be destroyed, but not by global warming and this gradual increase in the earth's temperature. God himself is going to judge the earth, and he will destroy it with fire. We want to show them that they need to be ready for that judgment, and they can be ready if they come to Christ. 
because Christ will bring them through the judgment like the ark brought Noah and his family through the flood, just as the New Testament says. So actually, global warming is a great opportunity for the gospel. So we can show them, no, God has promised to preserve the earth until he's going to judge the earth. We want them to be ready for that. Last question, number four. The media is constantly presenting messages that promote worship of the creation, devotion to the creation, rather than the creator. How do we guard ourselves against those false influences? Okay, that can be part of it, to reduce media consumption. What else can we do? Or what else should we do? We do need to be studying the scriptures. Study the scriptures deeply and consistently so that we know the truth and, as the scripture says, are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every new study or new claim made by people on television. Yeah, including the president, including people that we see as being very authoritative. And also, and this is obviously one of the main principles of the Christian life, we must test everything that we see and hear by the scriptures. They are our lenses for seeing the world. They are how we see things clearly. We go to the scriptures. We look through the scriptures principles. So we are going to, we can't avoid seeing all the, the false messages about creation and about how we should react to it in the world. But we can discern. We can test them by the scriptures if we actually study the scriptures. So those are the questions in the book. I thought they were worth considering. Any other questions? Yeah, Chris. Okay. What do you mean? Okay, I see what you're saying, Chris. Just to repeat your comment, when responding to people who have concerns about global warming, um, shouldn't we also bring up the concept of stewardship and that, yeah, we're concerned about the Earth too and even global warming? And I, and I think there's validity to that. We certainly want to make sure, though, that because there's a lot of uncertainty with global warming, just as there are with many other issues that we're, con that we're concerned about, the emphasis has got to be on, well, what does the Scriptures tell us? Scripture tells us that we can trust God to take care of the earth. We are responsible to as well, and we are going to do that. But where we don't know how to do that, or where we're not able to do that, we can trust the Lord to preserve the earth until he's going to destroy it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Other questions? Yeah, Bill.
Yeah. Uh, I, hmm. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that, Bill. Uh, just to briefly repeat the concept that even even that secular evolutionary models that have to do with global warming are a bit self-contradictory, where they say there there are no cycles of warming and cooling, and yet evolution requires that there were cycles of warming and cooling um, in the formation and development of the Earth. So yeah. If you have other questions or comments, see me afterwards, or also definitely check out the recording by Bill once uh, repost that on the website, and also see a lot more about this on Answers in Genesis. I may have misspoken last week when it came to the memory verse. We actually do have one more week, week to memorize it. Next week is when I'll be checking, not checking, but we'll be ending our time with memorizing that verse. Hopefully you will memorize it by then, just to post it and read it with you one more time. Our verse, again, is Exodus 20.11. And remember, this is a great verse because it's so abundantly clear in telling us what God did in creation. There's no way based on this verse, that we can fit symbolic days or millions of years into Genesis 1, because this is a simple explanation for the Israelites as to why they keep the Sabbath. Why? Because God made the earth in six days, and then he hallowed the seventh day. So let's read the verse together. Uh, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. All right, let's pray as we close. Lord God, I thank you for being so compassionate, so loving as to faithfully preserve the earth. You promised that you would, and God, we're still here today because you've kept your promise. Over these thousands of years, you have kept your promise not to flood the earth again, nor to cause the, the seasons and the day and night cycles to cease. Thank you, God, for being so gracious, despite our misrule and our continual evil. Thank you for letting us be stewards of the creation. Thank you that we can um, reflect your image in that way. I pray, God, that you would help us to be responsible stewards, to be discerning according to the principles of your word, and help us, God, make us bold and make us able to communicate the truths of your scripture, that we want to point people, God, away from worshiping the creation and instead worship you. God, help us to be able to do that by your spirit, by the empowering um, based on what we what we read in the Word, in Jesus' name, Amen.